0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck.
1: I'm Kemper Donovan.
0: And we are covering some Poirot and some very early Poirot at that, aren't we?
1: We are. It's funny. I didn't think that it was as early as it is because whenever I read a Poirot short story, I read out of my omnibus edition of the complete short stories of Hercule Poirot with foreword by Charles Todd. And the adventure of Johnny Waverly, which is the story we are covering in this episode, is number 15. Of 51. So it's, you know, a ways down there. So I figured to myself without actually looking at when it was published, oh, this can't be that early of a Christie. But I underestimated just how many of these Poirot short stories Christie wrote in the early 20s, because this is (laughs) the 15th one she wrote, but it is quite early, isn't it, Catherine?
0: Yeah, it was first published in The Sketch, bien sûr, yeah, of <laughs> in October of 1923 under the title The Kidnapping of Johnny Waverly. I suppose the actual title is the more accurate one.
1: Yeah, a kidnapping is more specific isn't mm-hmm. it? But, yes, it um, is. But perhaps the adventure of Johnny Waverly is a little more hopeful.
0: <laughs> Correct. And so it appears in book form in Three Boy Mice and other stories in the U.S. in 1950, and then in Poirot's early cases in both the U.K. and the U.S. in September of 1974.
1: Because, by the way, the first Poirot short story that Christy wrote was also published in 1923 in the sketch. Mm-hmm. And there are... In the spring, though. Yes, exactly. I mean, she, but it's it's really you know just such an amazingly fertile period for her when it comes, especially to those Poirot short stories, and kind of explains why I think. When she tapered off from the short stories in the 30s, she was able to write as many novels as she did because I think there was, you know, a large part of her output in this early period was going to these short stories. And I'm really glad it did because I really love them.
0: Yeah, and they do. I mean, we've talked about this before, especially the early ones. They're really fascinating. And we'll get to this when we get to the clues in this. But I think they're really interesting because so many of them are doing right from the get-go Um, A lot of the running themes and tropes that we will see forever after.
1: Absolutely. All right. So let's get into this and talk about our victim, who, as you could guess, especially from that initial title, is not a murder victim. He is a kidnapping victim, and he is quite young. His name is Johnny. Waverly. (laughs) And he is three years old. And he has been kidnapped from his home at Waverly Court in Surrey, England.
0: Right. And so we have suspects. Um, We have, you know, as often is the case with children kidnappings. You have the parents, unfortunately. So you have Mr. Marcus Waverly, Esquire, the boy's father. And he's from one of the oldest families in England. And they own this estate.
1: Well, that means he must be an upstanding gentleman who would never do anything wrong.
0: Of course. Of course. Of course. You can course
1: always not. make that, that assumption safely in a Christian story. <laughs> Next up, we have Mrs. Ada Waverly, who is an heiress of a prominent steel manufacturer. I smell a steel king.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I don't believe she's American, though.
1: I know. I was disappointed that she wasn't American, but at, at least from the north of England. You know, somewhere somewhere far away from London and Devon, anyway.
0: Right, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I kept waiting for her to show up being an American, and it, she is, in fact, not.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. And uh, Ada is the boy's mother.
0: Then we have Treadwell, uh, who is the longtime butler of Waverley Court. And this is actually uh,
1: my big fun fact for this story, because I think this is really interesting. But when I came across Treadwell's name reading the story, I was like, why does that sound familiar? I know that there is a butler named Treadwell in a previous Christie, and it actually comes from two previous Christies, which is probably why I remembered it, because, you know, we've read a lot of butlers at this point in our (laughs) Christie. Treadwell is the butler in both The Secret of Chimneys from 1925, so just two years uh, after the story, and The Seven Dials Mystery, which was published in 1929. and you know, The butler I just, then
0: at the same house.
1: The butler at the same house. I will note this too. We'll get there, but there is reference made to the council room at Waverly Court and also a priest's hall. And mm-hmm. those are two <laughs> of the attributes of chimneys In The Secret of Chimneys and The Seven Dials Mystery, which readers can point to as evidence that Christie was very directly basing chimneys on Abney Hall, which, of course, is where her brother-in-law, James Watts, lived. That was his ancestral home, and she spent lots of holidays there since... Her sister Madge married when she was still a child, since Madge was so much older. So Abney Hall was very near and dear to her heart. And I was like, huh, this is basically chimneys down to, I I had that thought before I then looked up where the Treadwell connection was, but down to the very butler's name. So she clearly was playing around with Abney Hall as a setting. You know, this house is not chimneys. It is Called Waverly Court, so it's not the same place, but it's kind of the same place.
0: <laughs> oh, the Butler at Abney Hall was named Treadwell.
1: The no, the Butler in the Secret of Chimneys and the Seven Dials Mystery who oh. was the Butler at Chimneys, right? Was right. Named oh Treadwell. no, but
0: we don't have any evidence that the actual Butler at Abney no, Hall was no, no,
1: named no. Treadwell. <laughs> no, it's just funny that she clearly was playing around with Abney Hall as a fictional setting in this early short story. And then she just did the same thing down to retaining the butler's name in those two novels. And even though they have different names, they're basically the same setting, i.e. the fictional version of Abney Hall. So I just find that amusing and interesting.
0: I like it. Next up, we have Miss Collins, who is Mrs. Waverly's secretary of about a year, but she's very trusted.
1: And then we have Johnny's nurse. She is actually... (laughs) fired uh by the time (laughs) the kidnapping is taking place and we will explain why and how. So she's largely not a suspect, though, you know, there's a little bit of suspicion cast on her. So we'll include her.
0: And then we have a tramp, because why not? Uh, And he's the one who's actually arrested by the police because he's carrying some chloroform and a blackmail note.
1: Sounds like a culprit and a Christie to me.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So, Kemper, the world as it appears to be.
1: Well, Mr. and Mrs. Waverly have come to Poirot because their child has been kidnapped. By the way, one of the first things I wrote in the margins when I started this story and realized that it was a child kidnapping is that this is pre-Lindberg baby actually. Mm -hmm. So let's, you know, give Christy the credit there. She obviously made much of the Lindbergh kidnapping in Murder on the Orient Express, but this is very much predating that. This is also, by the way, around when her own daughter, Rosalind, was about four years old. So interesting that she is uh, writing a fictional uh, kidnapping here in which the parents are quite emotional. Uh, Mrs. Waverly is very upset. Mr. Waverly uh, also seems to be extremely upset. Their child was very publicly kidnapped from their house, while it was, in fact, under observance by Scotland Yard. And they had received a series of threats, which escalated in impertinence, uh, asking for money, 25,000 pounds. That was a lot of money in 1923. And um, that even escalated to 50,000 pounds. And a notice that the boy would be kidnapped at a very specific time on a very specific day. And the time in question was 12 noon, high noon
0: hmm And so Mrs. Waverly, this is all the background to where the story starts. But what we find out is that Mrs. Waverly had insisted that her husband bring in Scotland Yard. And so the first time he goes to them, they, like Mr. Waverly, think it's just some random nut job, you know, uh, disgruntled former employee or something. They just like don't pay it a lot of attention. Um, but by that final note, they too are concerned enough that they Send a, both an inspector and a detail to Waverly Court to serve basically as a lookout for that high noon time.
1: So, on the day before the kidnapping is supposed to happen, Mrs. Waverly becomes very ill. Hmm, suspicious. Mm. So Mr. Waverly checks on his wife and he can tell her symptoms are puzzling the doctors and no one's saying it, but everyone thinks that she's been poisoned. And perhaps this has to do with the kidnapping. It's, it's sort of taking her out of the action. Mm -hmm. And uh, he goes back to his own room uh, where he has his own bed since this is a genteel couple of 1923. And oh my gosh, of course they don't sleep in the same room. And (laughs) he finds a note pinned to his pillow, which is in the same handwriting as the others and contains just three words at 12 o'clock. He freaks out at that point.
0: Right. And so because now it seems very clear that the call so to speak, has been coming from inside the house, Mr. Waverly fires the entirety of the household staff, with the exception of Treadwell, who's been the butler since Waverly was a boy, and Miss Collins, because Mrs. Waverly trusts her.
1: Right. And by the way, the Treadwell of chimneys had also been the butler forever and ever.
0: Well, you know, if you find good help, (laughs) Kemper, why would you ever, ever let them go?
1: Apparently, he's such good help that he's been placed in alternate realities.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so, yes.
1: So, on the appointed day, our Inspector d'Histoire, who is Inspector McNeil of Scotland Yard, he arrives at the house along with a contingent of policemen patrolling the property. And when the clock strikes 12 in the council room, they have a grandfather clock there, and Abney Hall really did have a room that was called the council room. It figures very prominently into the uh, plot of The Secret of Chimneys, if I remember correctly. Mm
0: -hmm. When this
1: clock strikes 12, there's a commotion outside. And Mr. Waverly and the inspector stupidly rush outside. They do not take Johnny with them who has been with them, to see what's going on. And the police have caught a tramp. This is our aforementioned tramp who makes such a perfect suspect because he has a note. He has chloroform on him. He says that he was essentially just paid to deliver this package. He didn't even Mm -hmm. know what he was delivering. But he's arrested. No one seems to believe him. And uh, you probably see where this is going. Upon returning to that room, Johnny is gone there's no sign of him instead the police see a gray car roaring off with a man and a flaxen-haired child next to him and everyone assumes that's Johnny since Johnny has blonde curls himself as every adorable child ought <laughs> i suppose especially in 1920s england on lavish country estates
0: and they just and, like wear little short pants and suck on lollipops and <laughs>
1: <laughs> little little sailor pants yeah the, little sailor pants The American version is Bonnie Blue Butler.
0: (laughs) Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, yeah, for sure, Bonnie Blue. But like,
1: If we're allowed um, to casually reference Gone with the Wind anymore, I'm not sure if that's a kosher casual reference.
0: I just always think of that. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, don't get the pony. Don't get the pony and then let the girl say something like, Daddy, Daddy, look at me. It's not going to end well, folks.
1: Not going to end well. (laughs) Spoiler, Catherine. Spoiler. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So um, they follow in pursuit of that car, of course, but they do not find that car. The car gets away.
0: So additionally, the tramp tries to point the finger at Treadwell, saying that he was the man who paid him, except without a mustache. And the police are basically like, uh, no. (laughs) <laughs> He's been in the house the whole time, and equally odd. Once all this has started to happen, the village clocks start chiming noon, which means that all the that the grandfather clock in the house, particularly, has been pushed uh, forward by ten minutes.
1: Yeah, this is one of those timing obfuscations in Christie that simply could not take place today due to, you know, the fact that we all have at least one device on our bodies at all times that tells us, you know, the atomic time.
0: (laughs) I know. I mean, I like have thought about, you know, I suppose the only case would be if you went someplace without cell phone reception.
1: You know what? There will be a mystery, a contemporary mystery that features that kind of an obfuscation uh, convincingly. It'll happen.
0: I don't think it's happened yet that I can think of off the top of my head. But yes, I suppose suppose if you go someplace without anything digital, you might be able to pull it off.
1: Like a very self-consciously twee sort of hipstery hotel where everyone has to turn off their cell phones. And, you know, there's only like one ostentatious grandfather quality. I mean, I'm not not
0: trying to offer up free suggestions to people, but Kemper, (laughs) are you familiar with those digital detox retreats where you get charged like a large amount of money to go to like a campground north of San Francisco and you have to like put aside all your electronics and you're only given like a pad of paper and a pencil. And, you know, it's basically like summer camp.
1: I remember I was going to go on a youth retreat in high school but one of the prerequisites was having to leave your watch because we didn't have phones that's how long ago this was um you had you couldn't have your watch on you and I remember feeling so controlled by that that it was a non-starter for me I was like nope can't do it not going (laughs) I don't want to be rendered by whatever cult this is (laughs) well I,
0: Um, I I do I do try to vaguely remember. I mean, I'm sure I had a watch too, but I'm trying to remember. I think that at summer camp, they just like rang out a bell or like a a speaker message for you to like switch what you were doing.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it was a lot easier back in the day to mess with people's sense of time.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Somebody, somebody should, I know somebody should write a a digital detox retreat murder. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and call it exactly that.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> Digital Detox Retreat Murder by Catherine Brobeck. <laughs>
0: so, I know. Hmm. I bet, <laughs> bet any Publishers are listening. <laughs>
1: hmm, interesting. So, all of this is told in retrospect. Like, now we are brought up to the present, by the way. I mean, this is, which is so typical for these early Poirot stories and is completely changed in the Suchet adaptation, of course, which is much more dynamic and action oriented. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite an easy change for this story, I thought, in the adaptation. But now in the present, Poirot is up to speed and he and Hastings go to Waverly Court where they take a look at, oh yes, the priest hole that exists in this house because of course there's a priest hole here. It's not just chimneys that has priest holes. I know, there are
0: many, many early Christie stories with priest holes.
1: She never met a priest hole she didn't like. So it is in this priest hole that we get our really only, I think, honest to goodness physical clue. Well, that's not completely true, but it's a pretty traditional
0: clue. It's really the biggest one.
1: Yeah, it's the biggest one. So the priest hole has been swept, but they missed a corner and they missed a spot. And of course, our Poirot does not fail to notice it. So there's a dusty corner in which Poirot sees what appears to be little paw prints, paw prints of a teeny tiny dog, Mm -hmm. perhaps? It's very curious.
0: Right, so Poirot and Hastings interview Treadwell and Miss Collins, and they also, during all of this, discover that all of the women, basically, from Mrs. Waverly to Miss Collins to the former nurse, all seem to vaguely dislike Treadwell, which is not a good sign. (laughs) Speaking of, they also leave uh, Waverly court and they interview the former nurse too. Because one of the questions that they ask her is charmingly, really. Um, Paro asks if the family has a toy dog. And she She says, says, oh, "Oh, of course they don't. No, 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 they don't. They don't
1: have a Yorkie. They don't have a Pekingese. Nope. You know, Mm -hmm. no toy dogs. (laughs) Perhaps we'll revisit that. So Poirot and Hastings go back to Waverly Court after their investigations. And after Poirot gives Hastings the rundown, uh, which is namely that Miss Collins, who had left before all of these events took place couldn't have done it. Mrs. Waverly had no reason to ask for ransom since she is the one who has all the money. Remember, she is the daughter of a steel magnate, so it would make no sense that she would be behind this. And Treadwell has... An ironclad alibi. I mean, when the kidnapping took place, everyone saw the boy in the car. Treadwell was definitely in the house. And it's an alibi that a lot of people seem to be able to vouch for. So this is a real pickle that uh, we find ourselves in. And perhaps it really is that tramp, which would just seem like such a boring ending to a Christie story. But we're going to use some clues to bridge on over to the world as it actually is. Take it away, Catherine Brobeck.
0: Clue number one. Where there is a priest hole, there is an answer. Paro puts a lot of fixation on this little point, and especially on those teensy tiny puppy prints. And there's obviously a reason for this. This is actually a very short, short story. And if it's going to put that much attention on those puppy prints, just pay attention to it. So the deduction is somebody knew about the priest hole very recently and had used it, and then had swept it clean, forgetting that one corner, along with. If not a very small dog, something that would seem like a very small dog.
1: Something at least very small dog shaped.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Clue number two, and this really is a, a Christie classic. Follow the money. Uh, you know, money is always so often the motivating factor here in a Christie. It so often does come down to lucre, which is very uh, true to life. Yes. And who has the money in the story? Uh, Well, Mr. Waverly has the family name, but as these things so often go, he married the money and his wife holds the purse strings here. You know, we are not in the 19th century. She still controls her own money even after they have become a married couple. And she seems to be holding it pretty tightly. And we are put on notice about this at the beginning where Poirot, you know, thinks to himself, well, she clearly loves her son a lot, but she also is very clearly her father's daughter and seems to be a bit tight-fisted when it comes to uh, money and just in terms of her overall demeanor. So it's not a stretch to imagine the dynamic between Mr. Mm-hmm. and Mrs. Waverly or money. Right.
0: Well, we're told by Hastings that Hastings finds out later that her father came up as a clerk for some sort of business, when, or a clerk, um, when he was a very young man to become this massive steel magnet. Right. So he, they value being very frugal.
1: He went from Bob Cratchit to Ebenezer Scrooge, essentially.
0: Yeah, basically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to to use a holiday rags to riches reference. <laughs> <laughs> so, the deduction here is that you know we've seen this so many times before when you have a marriage in which one party has the money and the other party perhaps wants the money because people just in general do want money for various things, we should look very closely at the party who desires that money and does not have it. So perhaps there's something else going on here with Mr. Waverly.
0: Clue number three, timing clues. Right there's a huge emphasis made on twelve o'clock repeatedly. It's in multiple notes. Right, we talk about it. You know the ringing of the clock in the room where they're hiding out. We hear the clocks in the village going off. It's clear that the clock in the house has been changed. Why would this be? Well, uh, why is it usually? It's a mystery act, right? When everyone goes out of the room at quote unquote noon, which isn't noon, what happens? Johnny disappears. In other words, someone in the house wanted everyone's attention drawn away from what was happening inside the house.
1: Right. And it's kind of an additive clue as to the call coming from inside the house. Mm -hmm. You know, like we know from those notes that somehow someone within the house was doing all this. But what's key here is that all of the servants, except for Treadwell and Miss Collins, have been fired at this point. And Mrs. Waverly is in her bed, ill. So there, there are literally only three people inside the house who could have altered the clock. Treadwell, Ms. Collins, and Mr. Waverley.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that's significant. Yep. And then our last clue really comes down to physical appearance. You could call it a quasi-costuming clue. It's just never to assume anything where physical appearance is concerned, especially when we can't get a good look at someone, either because of bad lighting or perhaps just distance. Mm-hmm. And... We saw that adorable flaxen-haired child being driven away in the car from a fast-driving car from a distance, right? We actually didn't even see it at all. The story was being told to us secondhand. But all of the police, the Scotland Yard inspector, etc., they all saw this from far away, and they assumed that that flaxen-haired child was johnny waverly and the deduction is that of course we should not assume anything in Christie's story and uh perhaps that was not johnny waverly perhaps something else was afoot here Catherine brobeck what is happening take us to our resolution please
0: so paro and hastings head back to waverly court and paro hands mr waverly a piece of paper he says you know it will have the address for his son's location and it's blank it's a blank piece of paper and Poirot says to Mr. Waverly that he has 24 hours to fill it in himself. Which is actually like, I kind of like this as like the kicker to this story. It's just like, so Poirot just looking at this man and being like, nah, got you.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it's a, Poirot brings on the drama and this is a very snarky.
0: I know. It's uh, so snarky. I really like it.
1: Yeah. Rendition of dramatic Poirot here. I love it too.
0: Because what's happened, obviously, Mr. Waverly set the entire thing in motion so that he could get his hands on some of his wife's money, or in this case, a large amount of his wife's money, to use for his uh, own extracurricular activities. We're not entirely told what those are, but Poirot basically suggests to Hastings that he's like a little bit of a bon vivant, you know?
1: hmm Yeah.
0: Mr. Waverly misdirects the police. Um, and then he with the clock going off and the tramp, and he sets his son up in the priest hall with toys, including a toy dog.
1: Mwah, mwah, mwah.
0: Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Drum rep, please. Treadwell, who he's known since he was a little boy, is his loyal right-hand man, and Treadwell helps him. Right. So, in fact, that tramp did see Treadwell. <laughs>
1: That was Treadwell with a fake mustache on who gave him that package and told him to deliver it at 10 minutes to 12. And then we don't really know whether it was Treadwell or Mr. Waverly who changed the clock and, you know, pinned the notes and whatnot, but they were working hand in hand. Together And it was quite easy for them to do all of that inside the house. And just to be clear, I mean, there are almost three situations in which Treadwell had to be accounted for and given alibis, so to speak. Basically, it was Mr. Waverly who vouched for Treadwell at the time when the tramp said that he was accosted by Treadwell wearing a mustache who gave him this package and, and told him to deliver it. And Mr. Waverly was like, no, 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 he was with me. So that was a, a lie because obviously Treadwell did do that. Then we have the moment when Mr. Waverly and the inspector ran out of the room and Johnny was left alone with Treadwell. So it right. was Treadwell who stashed him in the priest's hole with the toys that they had put in there to keep him quiet. Mm-hmm. And then after that, when the car drives away everyone sees that Treadwell of course is still in the house because even though it took him probably like 30 seconds to stash away poor little Johnny he can make himself noticeable and no one thinks that he could have had anything to do with it so within those three discrete moments Treadwell has managed to kind of account for himself or you know ensure that there's no suspicion put on him cuz no one thinks that it would have been that quick of a job to secrete Johnny Waverly into that priest hole. But of course, Poirot does because of the toy dog prince. Um, And also, by
0: the way, Scotland Yard doesn't know about the priest hole.
1: Right and yeah, they don't even know about the priest. so I mean, oh my God, do they realize that they're in an Agatha Christie story here? Come on. <laughs> um, and then, of course, there actually is a third person who's in on this because there did have to be that third man who was driving the car with what turns out to be a decoy boy. And we are told, and it is really weird, and really clunky. creepy.
0: It's really creepy too. Yes,
1: it really is. I underlined that section too, and I put a question mark and an exclamation point. Next I
0: know, to- like oh. My- Oh my gosh, like this is what should be investigated because this is terrifying.
1: Yeah, so this is part of the story we're told in retrospect about the car that had been driving away because they're not able to to find it right away, but they eventually do track it down. And Spectre McNeil says that the, you know when the car is stopped and the man and the boy are detained, um, everyone is so relieved. But what they find out is that the boy was not Johnny. And this is what Christie writes. The man was an ardent motorist, fond of children, who had picked up a small child playing in the streets of Edenswell, a village about 15 miles from us, and was kindly giving him a ride.
0: Oh, stranger a ride danger. To where? <laughs> stranger danger. It's so bad. It's just And it's like, how
1: could they not have followed up on
0: that? that you know, seems... Why would Scotland Yard not have been like, oh, an ardent motorist who is very fond of small children? I mean, that's like that's like what you put on like a that's the beginning of a serial killer documentary.
1: Yeah, very creepy. And Poirot even says, that is the mistake the police made. They made no further inquiries about the man who drove the gray car with the wrong child in it. He was the third man. He picks up a child in a village nearby, a boy with flaxen curls. He drives in through the East Lodge and passes out through the South Lodge just at the right moment, waving his hand and shouting. They cannot see his face with the number of the car, so obviously they cannot see the child's face either. Then he lays a false trail to London. So yeah, perhaps if they had followed up on that, it would have been solved more quickly and they wouldn't have had to bring in Poirot, but yeah. Christy does also solve the conundrum as to why Mr. Waverly would agree to bring Poirot onto the case if he's the one who's been behind all of this, because it's, of course, Mrs. Waverly who's the one insisting right. on bringing in Poirot, and as we know, <laughs> she holds the purse strings. So that totally makes sense.
0: Basically, what ends up happening is when the coast is clear from Scotland Yard and they're all going after this gray car, Mr. Waverly and Treadwell drive little Johnny to Waverly's childhood nurse's house. And Johnny's apparently having a very happy stay there. Indeed. So, yeah, anyway, Mr. Waverly confesses. He says he'll return the boy ASAP because he wants to save his family and his family name.
1: And I have to say, for all of the affection I have for Poirot's extrajudicial solutions, this is one where maybe he should have just hauled him in to the nearest magistrate and said, yeah, this guy just did a whole bunch of bad stuff.
0: <laughs> I know it's so like who's to say he's not going to do something like this again or just kill his wife. He did know, poison her.
1: Yeah, he he made his wife ill enough that she couldn't get out of her bed and he fake kidnapped his own son. He's like, "But I know you're a good father, so it's okay." Like
0: do you I know. No, I just like I mean, I think very little is made of the fact that it, he slightly poisoned his wife. <laughs>
1: don't touch that dial we'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode we just wanted to take a moment to ask you our dear listeners for a favor
0: if you haven't already done so we would very much appreciate it if you take a moment to you know give us a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast it
1: really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other christy fans such as yourselves to find our podcast
0: and the more ratings and reviews we get the more people we can reach
1: it should take Take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it
0: thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming
1: Well, that is the end of the Christie short story, which is pretty short. It's there, there are shorter ones, but, you know, this is definitely one of the simpler stories. And very simply told, too, because so much of it is told in summation, in retrospect, mm-hmm. in the first couple of pages. So it's certainly one of her more slight short stories. Interestingly, transitioning over into the Suchet adaptation, mm-hmm. which is very delightful. This yes. is the third episode of the first season. So it aired on the 22nd of January, 1989, over 32 years ago. Very exciting. And though this was the third episode that aired, uh, we learn in David Suchet's Poirot and Me that it was the second episode they shot exactly two weeks after our first. And even more fascinatingly, uh, as I learned in Mark Aldridge's new book, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, which really does have so much good information, especially as to Poirot short stories, that I can say with authority, I cannot find anywhere else. Like, this book just came out, but it has already been a crucial source of information for uh, these episodes. I wish we had had it for the entire run of know, the podcast. I know. I
0: know. We, we highly recommend it.
1: Highly, highly recommend it. But as Mark reports, this was the first script that was actually ever written for the series. And it was, of course, written by Clive Exton, who around the same time, a little bit later, would go on to write all 23 episodes of the Jeeves and Worcester series, which just makes a lot of sense in the context of the world he was creating in these, you know, early Poirot seasons, because mm-hmm. it really is so Jeeves and Worcester. And that is so in keeping with Christie, who's so very Woodhouseian. But this was the script that was used to pitch the series to various broadcasters, which I find really fascinating. It's a really good series. And um, the only other thing I'll say just about Mark's book, because I was reading a little bit um, in and around this episode when I was looking it up, is that he also explains, uh, I believe for the first time, why they chose the episodes that they did for that first season. You know, they had to pick 10 short stories. And what's really, really fascinating about it is that the estate specifically did not want to use any of the Poirot Investigates short stories in the first season. And I never even realized that until I read it, but it's true that none of those early Poirots that were collected into Poirot Investigates are used because they kind of wanted to have them in reserve. I think they were feeling a little tentative about the whole thing. They were like, well, let's not burn those right away because those those are, you know, they tend to be very good. So let's Let's find 10 other stories, which is why they actually chose from a lot of the early Poirot's that were collected in the Poirot's early cases. And also they did a bunch of the novellas. Mm-hmm. And the other reason why they chose that sort of smattering is that they wanted to have stories that didn't just feature murders, as most of them do, but ones like this one, which featured a kidnapping. And then for uh, Murder in the Muse, which is actually their second episode that aired, uh, fast forward, if you haven't yet read Murder in the Muse, uh, we obviously already covered it, but that one seems to feature a murder, but it actually features a suicide. And they just wanted to, to give a sense of the variety that exists among these stories that it's not always just a cotton-dry murder mystery. So that also... No, it
0: makes a lot of sense. Yeah,
1: it's just, you know, and it, it's a great first season. And as always, I'm just always delighted by how fresh-faced everyone is and the energy, you can just feel it in the episode. It's just, you know...
0: No, and it has um, this. I mean, it certainly has very good, just like character development scenes of all four of the leads. You get yeah. Miss, you get Miss Lemon's um, filing system, which I think we is that in Hickory Dickory Dock? Is that where that comes up? Like it's pretty late on because we don't get a lot of Miss Lemon really in actual Christie. So, but the filing system is canon.
1: It is canon. She probably does mention it in Hickory Dickory Doc, and that's one of the more robust Miss Lemon texts, right? So, probably it's, and I think it's at least in one or two of the short stories in which she appears as well. But yes, she is passionate about her filing system. And you it's like you blink and you miss Pauline Moran in this episode, but as usual, she makes her scene count and she's just steals it. I absolutely love her going on and on about yeah, her filing and
0: you, system. and you get like some good Jap moments.
1: Yes, and then lots of great Poirot and Hastings moments. And I think it was very creative of them to come up with a reason why Poirot can't be around when the kidnapping happens, because they place Poirot in the action. They place Poirot and Hastings in the action from the get-go, which is very easy to do because instead of coming to them after the boy has been kidnapped, they are coming to them when well, these notes first start mm, being sent to them.
0: It's That's my one quibble with this episode, really. Because in the short story, it's very clear that Mrs. Waverly is the one driving them to Poirot. Mm-hmm. And... There's no reason, really, why she shouldn't have been in that opening scene. Like, there really isn't a reason why she shouldn't have gone with her husband to Poirot. Because right. it's she's like, not married really, until then. No, yeah. and it's really yeah. odd, right, that he's planning this whole thing and his wife, like, and so instead of his wife pushing him to go to Poirot, he decides to go to Poirot. Well,
1: I know. I mean, I think what we're supposed to realize later is that she's the one who's been pushing him to do this all along. She just doesn't go with him, but she says, "No, you have to get Poirot on this." And she's the one with the money, right? Cause so she's going to pay the bill. So he goes and he does it, but she's the she's the one behind it. It's a little. It's not quite playing as fair as Christy does in the tax bill.
0: Right. I, I think it. I think it would. I, th- I just feel like there's no real reason to have changed that. That's my one thing that I wish they had not altered. But right. um, there is like a very, very charming subplot with Hastings and his car, which is w- what you were getting to about them going into the village.
1: Yeah, because you know because once Poirot was on the scene, you can't have Poirot there in the moment that Johnny Waverly is kidnapped because Poirot would never have let that happen. He wouldn't have been as, so stupid as to leave the room and forget about the subject of the kidnapping <laughs> as his father seems to be and as Inspector Jap who of course is the Inspector uh, de <laughs> here um, as as he is so the reason why Poirot isn't on the scene even though he's already taken up the case is that he and Hastings have gone out in Hastings's car and then Hastings's car breaks down and Poirot has to like walk back and there's this you know this long sequence in which he's walking through fields and he is just so miserable David Suchet actually talks about that sequence in Poirot and Me and how it helps establish Poirot's character. We've said this before. He is not a country mouse. He is a city mouse.
0: And it's also a good framing as the series goes on because it actually happens a lot in the books too, where people are like, well, why aren't you wearing a different pair of shoes?
1: (laughs) He's always wearing his, his patent leather
0: I know, why aren't you wearing, like, brogues? What's going on here? But, no, I and I love that Hastings is so excited that he's going to get to, like, drive his car at Le Mans. He just keeps telling everybody.
1: Yeah, really, really good. This is actually what David Suchet wrote about working with Jeffrey Bateman, who played Marcus Waverly, he's one of those actors where you're like, oh yeah, that guy, <laughs> a great character actor. He said, Jeffrey and I had definitely worked together before at the Connaught Theater in Worthing in 1971 when he played a samurai warrior in a stage version of the classic 1950 Japanese film drama Rashomon. It was very early in my career and I directed all the fight scenes as well as playing the bandit. Now Jeffrey was playing the landowner whose huge country house seemed to be falling down around his ears while his son is in danger. The only reason why I bothered quoting from that is a stage play version of Rashomon that David Suchet was in as the bandit. Can I time travel back to that and watch that please?
0: I, that feels so odd. (laughs) How do you
1: do a stage version of Rashomon?
0: I don't really know, actually. That's a very good question.
1: He's kind of burying the lead there. I'm like, uh, could you go uh, tell us a little bit more about that, please? He doesn't seem to in Poirot and me. But yeah, very interesting. If you've watched a stage play version of Rashomon, either in 1971 with David Suchet or at any time, uh, and you'd like to share how that works, please let us know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm trying to actually think this through, like as we discuss it, and I have no clue how that would work. I mean, I guess it's like
1: you know, you're staging the you're same just,
0: the same event, different time, differently. Yeah. yeah, It's, it's
1: obvious. i mean you know, I'm being a little facetious. It's obviously possible. I think it's just harder to pull off convincingly on a stage, but maybe if you do, it's actually that much more effective. You know,
0: possibly. I mean, I guess we will not know about that 1971. Um, no. I know unless you unless you have a TARDIS in your backyard Kemper. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I did also think this was interesting. I learned this as well in Poirot and Me. The director for this episode was Rennie Rye, who directed five of the 10 episodes for the first season. And what they did was to alternate between Ed Bennett, who directed the pilot, and then four other episodes for the first season, and Rennie Rye for the duration of this whole first season, so that one director could be shooting while the other one was in post on what he had just directed. And that allowed them to produce all 10 episodes within the 20 weeks that London Weekend Television allocated for them because uh, London Weekend Television actually had them on such a tight schedule that when they transmitted the series in January 1989, uh, it was barely three weeks after they had finished shooting. Which is real close. Obviously, it's three weeks after they had finished shooting, probably the last episode in the series or one of the last ones. It's not like they finished shooting the pilot and then the pilot was airing, so it wasn't that close. But like that is very tight, especially for uh, you know the first season of a show that's uh, establishing its own kind of look and feel as a as a period show. And you know this big Agatha Christie project, they just you know they were biting off a lot, and it's just always worth remarking that they chewed it well. And mm-hmm. uh, really, just establish the show for the shining jewel that it is from the get-go under, I think, some challenging circumstances. So,
0: yeah, and they ha- uh, they have good locations in this one too. I mean, the house Waverly Court is gorgeous.
1: It's it's very gorgeous, and they do, you know, this perhaps mitigates a little bit your issue with Mrs. Waverly not coming to that initial consultation. They make a lot out of the fact that Waverly Court is kind of crumbling and there's all this scaffolding because they had been doing repairs to try to refurbish it. But those repairs have stopped and it's constantly commented upon that Mrs. Waverly wasn't really very interested in the repairs and she doesn't really care if the house crumbles to the ground and how she really does have all the money. And we only really learn about that situation in the text much later and there's not much as much made of it. So we do well, get that. They play stuff, very fair with that.
0: There's some weird stuff going on with food in the house too. And yeah, the dinner,
1: the dinner uh, is small, which yeah. doesn't really raise an eye about for Poirot. Cause he's like, Oh, well, you know, it's a typical British dinner, i.e. Garbage. <laughs> <laughs> but the breakfast is when Poirot's like, hold, hold, hold the phone. You know, I can do a bad English dinner. But isn't English breakfast supposed to be, you know, he's basically like, where are my baked beans? I was promised a big steaming vat of (laughs) baked beans in sugar, which is what I personally do always look for as well when I am staying anywhere in the United Kingdom. Like, I want my baked beans on toast because that is what I signed up for (laughs) when I came here. And uh, he does not get them. I think all they have is some kedgery.
0: Yeah, that also is partially why they end up in town, or the primary reason why they later end up in town.
1: Right, for a proper English breakfast, including beer. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Where I was like, beer, and Hastings is like, yeah!
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's like yes this is exactly Let's get
1: wasted
0: day drinking <laughs> i know beer for breakfast is um interesting oh and there's a the charming runner with the toy car too
1: yes the little boy has a toy car because he too has a childish interest in cars just like <laughs> hastings
0: <laughs> yeah other than my quibble with the Setup of it.
1: Yeah, well, because what's interesting is that they do actually change the mechanics of the mystery a bit, which was, you know, quite daring for them to do in the first script that was ever written, I think. But it, it really works because in this version, the priest's hole is really a priest's tunnel. You know, in Christie's version, it's just a recess in which the boy can be secreted until he can be whisked away. But in this version, there's a tunnel that leads to the outside. So Treadwell is able to lead the boy through the tunnel and actually exit the house unobserved with him at which point he hands the boy over to Miss Withers who is the nurse of the boy and she you know gets fired in a sort of very performative way she's very upset this is noted earlier in the episode and she turns out to be Treadwell's niece so she's the third culprit here she's also involved in what's going on, and she takes the boy so that when she drives in the car and you see the boy from a distance in the window, it actually is Johnny Waverly. There's no decoy boy. In this version, which is interesting. They changed that a little bit and they, you know, they changed up who that third. Well,
0: yes, probably was. because the idea of like, oh, yes, we picked up a strange kid on the street and convinced them to go into the car with this strange man was probably a less, um,
1: yes, <laughs> yeah. a little unsavory. Yes. I think it was an elegant adaptation as to how they changed it a little bit, but very much kept its bones intact, and then added on these lovely character moments with the family, right? Mm-hmm. Or cast of the four of them. I can totally see why this script was a good calling card, and I think it makes a fantastic third episode of that lovely first season slash series, and um, yeah, just a big fan.
0: Yeah, it's an enjoyable, quick read, and a uh, very enjoyable episode.
1: And we, of course, couldn't fail to mention that there is a French-language adaptation of this within the second iteration of, oh yes, Catherine, Les Petits Meurs d'Agatha Christie.
0: I'll always <laughs> appreciate you, Cumber. No matter what you do,
1: (laughs) I really wanted to end the episode just on my superb French for you. I thought that was a fitting way to just like go out on a real high note. Um, You know, dear
0: listeners, it's like every day is Valentine's Day here with (laughs) us.
1: So that is the adventure of Johnny Waverly, or the kidnapping of Johnny Waverly. I think it's a really fun early Poirot, and we really are running out of those early Poirots at this point. So I'm really trying to savor each one while we still have it here. Aww. We will be covering a Miss Marple novel next. That is at Bertram's Hotel. Very exciting for Mm -hmm. our second in the back-to-back Miss Marples that we have here late in Christie's career. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you, of course, about, you know, maybe a stage play you've seen of Rashomon. We're curious. Let us know. You can email us at allaboutthedame@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you would like more content from us, you could always go over to our Patreon site. We are at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We are on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Robcat. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And please take a moment to rate and review us if you haven't already done so. And we'll see you next time. Bye.
0: Bye.